1: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. have another packed episode for you today. We're going to start out by talking about the best pop music of 2022 so far. To do that, I'll be joined by one of Rolling Stone's pop experts, Tomas Mier, who's joining me for the first time on this show. And then I'll be joined by Rolling Stone's Corey Groh to talk about the very metal aspects of this season of Stranger Things from Metallica to the real-life satanic panics that actually inspired a lot of this season's plot. And, of course, one of the very best pop albums of the year was Harry's House by Harry Styles. And if you want to hear us talk about that, we had an entire episode about that just a few weeks ago. So Tomas and I will be skipping that one. But here's what we had to say about a lot of the other great pop music of 2022. So far, that is. So, Tomas, thanks so much for joining me. Of course. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I wanted to start by asking you about just to take a picture of the overall trends. I mean one thing that seems significant to me is we are in this sort of post Olivia Rodrigo moment and we see that in various places. We see that in more guitars and some albums. We see that in her friend Conan Gray's album. Are you seeing that effect and what other sort of overall movements, trends changes are you seeing so far this year in pop and pop is as we'll see from the kind of music we talk about is so broad that it's almost impossible to generalize
0: no it totally is too hard to generalize but i think the impact of olivia rodrigo is definitely there and i want to say also the impact of machine gun kelly and his punk rock resurgence is definitely in a lot of the music that we're getting this year I'm also feeling like a lot more artists are willing to be a lot more experimental in their sounds and tapping into sounds that maybe might not have worked before or finding a way to lace their cultural heritage into their silence and make it sound so natural
1: we saw this last year too but there's so much great latin music that is so experimental at the moment and pushing a lot of boundaries
0: definitely i mean if we're going to talk about experimental latin music i think we would have to talk about bad Bunny's un verano cinti that did such a good job of mixing his reggaeton sound with tropical sounds of the past but also this electronic edm element to it that just makes it so Bad Bunny still, but also very different and very new. And I think it's resonating with people perfectly. We're talking about somebody that has been the number one streamed artist in the world for two, three years at this point, and finding an album that is even better or equally as good as his last two records, whether it be Yo Hago Lo Que Me Da La Gana or El Ultimo Tour Del Mundo. He really did that with Un Verano Sin Ti, it was filled with collabs with like newcomers like Rao Alejandro on Party and Jay Cortez on Tarot. And I think he did a really good job of adding new sounds and also featuring some indie. Like I would have never imagined to hear the Marias joining Bad Bunny on a track on Otro Atardecer, but it just works. I'm good. There's songs on this album like Titi Me Pregunto, which is probably the standout on this record. That is just Bad Bunny alone, but has such a catchy verse, this catchy chorus that as soon as you hear the title of the song, you already know like what, what it is. And then there's the collabs with Bomba Estéreo, on Lindos and Um, The Marias on Otro Atardecer that are so unexpected, but once you hear it, it just makes sense. And it's it's this mix of like this indie beautiful voices of these like female singers with Bad Bunny's kind of like dry reggaeton rap trap voice that merges together so perfectly.
1: Another really acclaimed album that I know is among your personal favorites of the year is the Rosalia album. It's just so cool sonically, and she's really stretching herself.
0: I mean, stretching herself is probably the word to use to describe what Rosalía did on this album because I think she was able to include so many different genres, so many different sounds on a record, and still make it sound like it belonged all together. It's weird. It's a really weird, strange album, but it it works. She's like saying the alphabet in one of the songs.
1: A de alfa, altura, Alien B de bandido.
0: In another one, she's singing about
1: chicken teriyaki.
0: But in context, and, and if you listen to it all the way through, I think it just shows the complexities of the type of musician and woman that she is, and, and it's perfect. And it has that weekend collab that I think is phenomenal, La Fama, where she taps into bachata, which is a Caribbean genre that might not be that you wouldn't expect somebody like Rosalia and The Weekend to do well with. And they knock it out of the park.
1: And I think that is a good transition into one of the biggest and one of the best Pop Albums of the Year, which is The weekend's album, Dawn FM. It might actually be my favorite weekend album. I think it, it is the one that best makes the case for him as the kind of pop auteur beyond just hit maker that clearly is the spot he wants to occupy right now. And I was really impressed with it. It paints the kind of... Visual picture he wants to paint with really cool synth stuff city pop influence stuff 80s influence stuff It's a v- real achievement. I thought
0: Totally it's cinematic it felt like I-, I felt like I was in a journey I felt like, you know, when like Buzz Lightyear like takes off into space and it's like stars all around, like that's what this album felt like to me. And I think it's very different from anything he's done before.
1: Depends on, on your edible intake before. it, But yeah, it, that's it get, a very good get,
0: point. It can get you there, though. Yes, <laughs> it can uh. definitely get you there. And I mean, if we're talking about The Weeknd's best albums. Beauty Behind the Madness, I think, is still will always be my favorite because it's like just a perfect R&B record. But when it comes to this pop and this like experimentalness, I think... He does it perfectly on this record, and I, I think the few collabs on it work well. I think it's Lil Wayne and Tyler the creator that are in there, and I think they add the perfect little extra taste that that just make this record so whole.
1: And we should talk about Flo, who are an amazing young girl group, really in that Destiny's Child vein. They put out this perfect EP, and I think that's one of your favorites as well.
0: If you're going to talk to yeah. me, we're going to talk about girl groups because I am a girl group fanatic. And we're talking about flow coming in at a time when um, Little Mix just disbanded. Fifth Harmony has been gone, gone for a few years now. So like we're due for a new girl group. And I think that these girls did everything they needed to do to be the moment. They mixed this like, R&B nostalgia of like early 2000s But with this modern flair that I think works so well, their first single, Cardboard Box, was outstanding to the point where Missy Elliott, JoJo, everybody was shouting it out because it was just that good. uh, and And everyone's like, who are these girls? And a few months later, they dropped the lead EP and I think it's like that perfect introduction to a group that I think is going to be the next big thing. Let's manifest it, Brian.
1: It feels like it. I'm surprised that Cardboard Box wasn't a bigger song than it was. I haven't seen it on TikTok or heard it on the radio, but I could be wrong.
0: No, you're right. I, I don't think it's gotten the chart achievement that it deserves. And maybe this piece is going to help. They also dropped the follow-up single, Immature, that I think is also a great pop R&B track. Feels
1: like I've been waiting a lifetime.
0: So with those two songs together, I feel like these girls are going to be it.
1: And let's talk about Omar Apollo's Ivory. You wrote a great profile of Omar Apollo. And this is a really, really interesting album. And while I'm not saying it's influenced by uh, Olivia, it's in a very different vein. It just shows how much sort of like guitars are back at the moment. There's a song on there that I was... Torn between whether it sounds like the zombies or the shins, waiting on you. So it's a beautiful sort of singer-songwriter album. Tell me, I- I'd recommend everyone read your profile of him, but tell us a little bit about him and about this album.
0: Yeah, thank you. Well, Omar Paulo, like me, he's like a son of Mexican-American immigrants He's queer. He grew up listening to music like The Shins, like Prince, like Whitney Houston. And you get all of those influences, his like cultural background with the music that he grew up listening to on this record. And I think it's one of those albums that he tries a taste of everything that he's good at and puts it all together on one first LP. and. I think the shins is a pretty good way to disc- to to compare waiting on you. My personal favorite on the album is Killing Me. I think it's just such a beautiful song. That song had me in tears, Brian. It came out, it came at an interesting time in my life. But there's also a song on there that I wanted to talk about En el Olvido, which is literally a corrido. Like it's a Spanish, all Spanish corrido where he's backed simply by an acoustic guitar. Jamás tuve esperanza, me pegó la bala, sin tu calor. And in the album, like maybe it seems out of place, cause the song right after is a track produced by Pharrell, Tamagotchi. This is Tamagotchi. But the song is like such like a perfect homage to like who he is as an American, a first generation American. And it's definitely my favorite song on that album.
1: The Pharrell thing is fascinating because he he's never sort of stopped having a moment, but he's clearly having a moment and in places where you wouldn't necessarily expect him. He's, He's on the Rosalia album. He's on this album and probably, you know, a bunch of albums like I haven't even thought of. He's really right back at the very center of some of the most exciting music right now.
0: Definitely. I mean, I don't, in Spanish we say, no sale de moda, which it doesn't, he never goes out of style. And I think that's what Pharrell's so good at, that he can make anything sound so him, but also still so new. And I think that happens here with Tamagotchi. Tamagotchi is such an interesting song. And and I think Pharrell added that perfect touch to this record. And from what Omar told me, there's more music with Pharrell on the way so I'm interested to see what's that going to sound like, given what we got with Tamagotchi.
1: It's true. He does not go out of style. We were talking about The Weeknd. The Weeknd is someone else who at the beginning people were talking about in terms of actually the exact same bedroom R&B was literally the same genre description. And they've both broken so hard
0: out of that. <laughs> and Omar had spoken to me about how he had already this record done. And it was something that he didn't like. He just was like, it's too, too perfect, quote unquote, because it's exactly what he was being asked to do, but it didn't feel him at all. And I think with this LP, he really was like, I'm going to tap into what I like, the sounds that I like. He literally scrapped a music video that was already shot simply because he didn't like the song anymore. And I think that putting his artistry first is really taking him to a new place. Camila
1: Cabello, you know, I know it's, it's a real chore for you to talk about this. And I I could hear the pain in your voice when you were talking about her group breaking up, even though it's been a few (laughs) years. But she's an interesting point in her career. Maybe you can lay out where she's at, where this album fits in and why you love it.
0: No, you're right. I'm still not over it and it's been like five years, but I'm also really glad that she is able to do her own thing because this this album is probably my favorite of hers. It's coming at a time when she already had massive billion stream hits. We're talking about Havana, we're talking about Senorita that came with her first and second album. And this third go around, it really seemed like Camila was coming into it in a place where she wasn't necessarily on top of the charts. The singles did not chart very well. But I think what worked with this LP was merging her culture, Cuban-Mexican culture, with these pop sounds and doing it effortlessly. One song specifically, my favorite, is Hasta Los Dientes, which features Maria Becerra, who has become a reggaeton like staple on a lot of uh, reggaeton albums. But this is like a complete pop song, just sung completely in Spanish.
1: And
0: there's a track called La Buena Vida that's in English, but with a mariachi background.
1: I woke up happy by accident. I forgot you were gone again. In other words,
0: so it's Camila Cabello singing a mariachi song in English. And I don't think anybody has really done that before. I think of Linda Ronstadt when I think of people in the American sphere tapping into their mariachi Latino roots. And I think Camila does that on this record so well.
1: And Charlie XCX, Crash, and she's someone who's been around for a while. She's been on Atlantic Records and like, been fighting with her label since the beginning and it is this weird kind of thing where she never was quite as big as she was supposed to be and made a lot of cool music, also wrote a lot of great songs for other people and I think a lot of people felt like this was one of her strongest albums in a while. It's also her final album I think on this label so she'll be free now and we'll see what she does next but she is kind of a pop perennial now where do you kind of slot this album in her pantheon?
0: I think this is her best album ever period. Wow Um, okay. I I would say so because I think Sucker was this like perfect introduction well True Romance was her first true album but I think Sucker was like the one that we got Break the Rules on but I think for me this is quintessential Charlie and her full pop girl Pop main girl moment. I think her last two al- albums, How I'm Feeling Now, which was done during the pandemic, and her self titled album, Charlie, which featured production credits by the late Sophie, was very like experimental and very hyper pop. And I think a little bit to the fringes. And I think what Crash did perfectly was she mixed those elements, but also with like something that's a lot more palatable and digestible. And I think. That's what worked well. What's your favorite song on it?
1: I also like Yuck.
0: Yuck is a great song. Yes, Yuck is probably my favorite. I I mean, I think when you talk to... I talked to Charlie XCX before the album came out last year, and she was like... This is me co- becoming a villain like I'm becoming this like bitch. She literally explained it in that way and I think that sounds like yuck like she's a sassy like kind of kind of like mean girl but in a perfect way and I think that that the album is exactly who Charlie XCX is and I think that it, that's why it's so good and the, the collabs on this one also are phenomenal. Rina Sawayama, I think, is somebody who similar to Charlie deserves better. And it was cool to see them two on a song and on in this beautifully strange video of where they did like a human sacrifice. It was so strange, but it, it made sense for them.
2: You know go and say every
1: time you have to catch a I think lightning is another really good one.
0: Yes, Lightning is so good. And then every rule after that, which is like a ballad. So it was like Lightning, which is like obviously got like full bop. But then you go into every rule, which is like this like slower, maybe more ballad-like pop song. And then you get Yuck. And Used to Know Me, which is the one of the, the standout singles, I think, that has been remixed time and again. And if you ever go to West Hollywood, Brian, you're going to hear Used to Know Me at every club.
1: Super Storka. So... To Sturka, she's been around for a while, but this album Hard is a lot of fun.
0: It really is. Well, I think her main moment before this came when she dropped Sway, which is her album that she released before touring with Lord. And that's that album had like Say My Name and the title track. But this this album Hard, I think was like a This is who I've been for the longest time, and I'm going to give it to you completely. Show Me Love was the first single of this album. And I think what she did so well in it was that she incorporated the guitars that we were talking about earlier to this record that wasn't necessarily like a full pop bop, but with the guitars was just perfect and a good first single, I think, for the LP.
1: I was going to say the song Cool Me Down also has a little bit of those post Olivia guitars in it on that album. The no, so this song Start Walking, by the time it gets to the chorus, it literally sounds like it should be on the Flashdance soundtrack, super <laughs> retro. So really, really
0: fun album. No, totally. And there's also the song Hardcore, which I'm assuming inspired the title of the album that was produced by Elvira.
1: And
0: And it's literally her being like, fuck it, I'm just gonna do whatever I want. She literally said like, the lyrics sometimes don't even make sense, but they make sense to me, and that's what matters. And I feel like that's exactly what what Tove is, and and she's better for it. I think
1: she was a finalist on Swedish Idol, right? Is that that's her deal?
0: Yeah, something like that. She was like a big girl on Swedish Idol, and I, oh, you know what? I talked to her about. I talked to her about like coming into the footsteps of like Swedish icons. I'm talking ABBA, I'm talking Tove Lo, Robin, even, and she's like nobody is expecting to be the next abba but i'm glad that their reputation is like bleeding onto my music and it's true like i think i think of swedish girlies and i know that they're going to make phenomenal pop music
1: wait tovlo is pronounced tove but she's pronounced is that right
0: oh my gosh well it's it's supposed to be pronounced tovalu but she's embraced tovlo so i don't even know what to call her now i'll call her both
1: i feel betrayed and you know there's the certain art like we will probably end up we haven't heard lizzo's whole album at this point but about damn time is just an undeniable great song
0: I i think it's lizzo as lizzo i think what lizzo does well is having those Boppy songs with like the catchy, empowering lyrics that I think make her perfect. Like I think that's why TikTok has eaten this song up.
1: I think the biggest compliment I could pay to it, or one of the biggest compliments I could pay to it, is that there's certain TikTok songs where. You are truly just happy with the 16 seconds of it and never need to hear the rest. But unlike many of those, this one actually holds up as an entire (laughs) song.
0: Totally, totally agree with you on that one. I I had actually
1: assumed that it wouldn't. I I assumed that it was only that part. And then I was like, no, 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 I'm actually, I I want the whole thing. I'm surprised. Good for you, Liza. Taking it to the next level. But, and then there's a great Sky Ferreira song. Sky Ferreira being the the great lost alt pop uh, star who's just been working on her next album for like years and years and years uh, and has come back with a song that I love don't forget
0: There's a fire on your. Street.
1: Like the whole, it's it's not actually produced by Trent Reznor on like the Les Halsey album, but it has a little bit of that might be produced by Trent Reznor type in, industrial pop vibe. And I, I think it's really cool. I don't know if you're into that one.
0: No, totally. I mean, Sky Ferreira is one of those artists that it's like, she always deserved better, always needed better, always deserved the world. And I, I think her coming back with the single just like makes sense because she, she had done a release in 2019 called Downhill Lullaby. But like coming back with this, like, I think it's, it was just fire. It was I think everything we needed from somebody like Sky today.
1: And I you know, I don't know if the album is gonna turn out to be a pop album per se. So this might be in the wrong genre, but I was stunned by how much I love the Noah Cyrus song I burned LA Down. It's really good. You left a hole in much as when you
0: See, I'm excited to hear the entire project because I still haven't listened to this one either. I know our colleague Julissa just did this phenomenal profile on Very Noah sorry,
1: yeah. that
0: I think just like really humanizes this like younger sister of a pop star who also is a musician in her own right. And she's like opening up in the music like she has not before about. Her addictions and things like that, but I burned a LA lay down is so great. That's the one I. That's the one I have listened to, and I have it in my like most streamed songs because it's just so good.
1: There's a song called Beach Boy by Benny. That's one of your favorites. Tell me about that one.
0: Benny is a queen she had a song that popped off on TikTok in 2020 that fully launched her career called super lonely I know I
1: fucked up I'm just a loser. shouldn't
0: be with Guess I'm, a well, you're about to I- I'm sure you've probably heard it and before then she had the song called glitter that was also doing its rounds on TikTok. <laughs> And I think she she dropped this debut album last year and came back this year with this like very experimental EP. Um, I guess it's being called an album. It's seven tracks, Beach Boy being the first single from it. And it's it's such a fun record. It's just like her, she literally sings Beach Boy be my bitch, baby. And I think it's it's Benny and what she does best, because I think her last records have been really exper- experimental. She had Grimes on it. She had Lily Allen on her last album. And this EP slash project is all just her experimenting with new sounds. And yeah, the album's called Litchi. if you haven't listened to it.
1: I think Beach Boy Be My Bitch Baby was actually a deleted lyric off Pet Sounds. Do you want to talk about Becky G a little bit?
0: Let's talk about Becky G. Becky G has been doing this thing called music for so long in a profile with Rolling Stone, she called herself like a reverse crossover artist because she started in English and then did the English thing, did Spanish and is now like fully launched herself into a Spanish world.
1: There's actually a lot of that reverse crossover going on, isn't there at the moment?
0: No, I mean, it. there totally is. And I think Becky G has been like doing it for just the longest time. It seems like for me, um, having followed her career from like sh- the shower days and now having this album that's fully in Spanish, with some pop and also the reggaeton influences in there. It's like a good mix of, I think, what makes Becky G. her. The standout song on this one is Baile Con Mi Ex, which means I dance with my ex.
1: Con mi ex.
0: And it's, it's a very like a disco pop soundy track. And then I would, be dragged, if I didn't talk about Mami, which is her collab with the other G, Carol G, that has become like a standout track for both artists. And I think really has cemented them as like leaders in the reggaeton world. And I, I, I think it also ended any like made up beef that, be, that there could only be one G. Nice.
1: We didn't actually talk about Conan Gray. Someone you profiled, and it really falls into that post-Olivia Rodrigo thing that we were talking about. It falls into another thing that I've talked about elsewhere on this podcast, which is just the sort of children of Taylor Swift, the Swifties-turned-musicians of whom there are just more and more and more every day.
0: Yeah, I mean, a very much child of of Taylor Swift of, of her school of lyricism, I guess. I think, yeah, Conan taps into these like really uh deep parts of his heart and, and and not just talking about heartbreak and the love aspect but also what he went through in his childhood. He sings about abuse and some of the trauma he faced as a kid. And he does that in a way that is like like heart wrenching, but also something that you actually want to listen to. I think a lot of times when we get those like songs Sometimes it can be a little too much you know and I think the song is called family line and I think it's it's something that I would still stream even if I'm not feeling super sad scattered
2: across my
1: family line, I'm so good at telling lies that came from my and I
0: think on the album there's a lot of tracks like that where the lyrics it's like wait if I look at the lyrics homeboy is going through it but there's songs like disaster which is probably my favorite this could be a disaster. And movies where he sings about this like idealized sense of like love and how they simply just don't end up turning out for him that I think works so well, and then there's also footnote. He said at the party that I was too drunk. I told you I liked you. He said so. Uh which feels also very Taylor Swift. Somebody pointed out that there it might be a lyrical reference to Taylor Swift, it's intolerated.
1: my temple, my, view, my sky. Footnotes in the story of your life Drawing
0: hearts in the She says, now I'm begging for footnotes in the story of your life and oh, Conan yeah. Gray sings something very similar in his song, Footnotes.
1: It's a little trauma dumpy, <laughs> the album, but um. you're right. He kind of papers it nicely with melody and, and makes it appealing even when you're like, even if it was your friend, you're like, this is a lot, Do we, can we save some of this for the next time we meet? But it's still a really enjoyable album. And, and after it,
0: having Kid Crow, I think Kid Crow was his first LP was a very like angsty, like I'm just sad and these things happen to me. And now it's like I went through shit kind of album, which I think shows that he's like becoming more mature, but also still going to that point where he's fully entrenched in what he's feeling and finally allowing himself to just let it out.
1: Yeah, and he's you know he does occupy, so he's friends with Olivia. He's influenced by. Lord Taylor, Billie Eilish, you know, so it, it does make sense that there would be a male artist occupying this space now too, because we haven't had as many of those. I think Phineas is trying to be one, but but you know, there aren't that many, so he's an interesting case.
0: That's a really good way to put it. I think yeah, he's a really good friends with Olivia Rodrigo, and they're produced by the same guy, Dan Negro, and I think they work so well together. And and he, these are these are his two babies, I would say, Olivia and Conan. And they're both very similar, but also kind of different. And it, it's cool to, to see those differences. And I think having that female voice and the male voice in Conan is cool too.
1: And, and before we go, we should probably mention Avril Lavigne's Love Sucks, which is a real comeback album. It kind of, on the in the 20th anniversary of her debut album, Let Go, she kind of recaptures a lot of what made people fall in love with her in the first place. And it's weirdly also ties in with the whole thing that we keep talking about, the Machine Gun Kelly, Olivia Rodrigo revival of the kind of music that Avril helped popularize in the first place. So a very well-timed album and a very welcome comeback. And Tomas, thank you so much for joining me.
0: Seeking the truth never gets old.
1: Next up, we're switching gears somewhat dramatically. We're gonna have Corey Groh join me to talk about the very metal aspects of this just concluded season of Stranger Things, from Metallica's Master of Puppets to the very real metal-related satanic panic in the U.S. in the 80s that inspired a lot of the plot of this season. So, Corey, thanks so much for joining me. So. I didn't think I'd be talking about Stranger Things again on this podcast for this same season. I thought running up that hill would be it. But here we have an even more unlikely song entering the actual top 40 because of Stranger Things. And it is, of course, Metallica's Master of Puppets. And... It's a scene that may have been even better as far as a use of music in a show. I, I think that scene where the, the character of Eddie Munson plays Master of Puppets to draw the upside down bat creatures away from his friends is one of the greatest sort of fictional rock, fictional metal scenes I've ever seen. I don't know what you think. Yeah,
2: I watched it kind of late. And so I knew Metallica was going to be in it. And then when I saw the buildup to that scene, I'm just like, this has to be the Master of Puppets scene. And it... Definitely delivered for me, at least. So yeah, the way that they did that, I thought was brilliant.
1: There's a couple of things. First of all, I don't think they showed how he plugged in his amp in the upside down. Not only, I, in the, yeah, not only the upside down, but like out in the wilderness in the upside down. <laughs> not only, I, in the, yeah, not only the upside down, but like out in the wilderness in the upside down. So I have some questions about that.
2: I don't know how he summoned James Hetfield's voice in the upside down.
1: <laughs> well, I think Lars's <laughs> drums. <laughs> I think diegetically all they were hearing was his guitar and we were hearing yeah. the, uh, the song. He was just playing it, you know, perfectly. The other, th- the other thing someone pointed out is that I guess the album had really only come out a couple weeks, two to three weeks before the date that this took place. So he's a fast learner, apparently, and he couldn't, and he had to have learned by ear. And, and he was a fugitive during that time, so I guess he used his time as a fugitive to learn Master Puppets by ear, so very impressive.
2: It's a tricky song. <laughs> yeah that album came out in march of 86 i don't know the time frame of the tv show but uh, yeah also like that was a really slow build of an album it wasn't until they were on tour with ozzy that it sort of became this underground hit um later in the year
1: so apparently it takes place largely at the end of march nineteen eighty six. 86 so yeah no so so he was he was super tuned in to a band that had just released its major label debut but, you know, if you were a metalhead like him, it's not that unrealistic that he would be on it. But yeah, fast learner, good guitar player. Absolutely. The, the world lost a lot with the passing of, of Eddie Munson. And, I, you know, it's it's interesting on a couple levels. I mean, you know, I think that metalhead archetype, hasher, was the word that used to be used, is, is, you know, is so familiar to those of us who grew up in the 90s and 80s and maybe totally alien to the vast Gen Z audience. And he, and this one character now represents all of that for a whole generation, which is really interesting.
2: Yeah, I hadn't really considered that until you said that, just because I grew up with it, too, like just our generation. But yeah, high tops, jean jackets, back patches, like that amazing D.O. back patch that he had on his jean jacket, long hair, and just that sort of upbeat, we-can-do-it attitude that was certainly a type of person in the... Mid to late '80s and then even into the '90s, they they still survived the Nirvana boom. <laughs> that type of person,
1: yeah, usually very very good guys and often misunderstood. Sometimes women as well, and and often into those very things in addition to metal, Dungeons and Dragons, horror movies. You might read uh, Fangoria, which is back, but it's a you know magazine about horror and special effects that was very big back then. So it was lovely to see that type of person represented and represented so well. Before we get into that and some of the Satanic Panic real-life stuff that inspired the rest of this season, because that ties into the heavy metal theme as well. Maybe just dig back into Master of Puppets, the album and the song. You actually interviewed the guys from Metallica just a few years ago about this. It really was, especially the, the song itself, it was just Metallica at a certain peak of their thrash metal early years, wasn't
2: it? Yeah, well, Speaking about Master Puppets the album, the Master Puppets the album was almost a perfected version of their previous album which was Ride the Lightning. So it, 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 it's easier almost to talk about the first 3 Metallica albums really quickly. On their first album Kill 'Em All, they invented thrash and it was just this really hard hitting fast fast as you can metal style. And then they came out a year later with another album Ride the Lightning. And started doing melodic guitar solos and had a ballad on there called Fade to Black. of the heshers immediately called them sellouts and said that they suck now and how can they how can they go from thrash to just doing balance which obviously in hindsight that album is a thrash masterpiece and they sort of built their legend around that time and by the time they were ready to do 1986's master puppets they had really just built a lot of momentum and they sort of repeated a lot of things on master puppets that they had done with ride the lightning they recorded it in the same studio in denmark they Structured it almost the same way. Both albums have opened with this sort of classical guitar flourish thing and then go into like one of the heaviest, fastest songs on the record. And they pace them similarly. Each album has a pretty kick ass instrumental. It's Orion on Master of Puppets. <laughs> They sort of just took what they had been done and just found like the, the the perfection. I know that sounds kind of strange, but they 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 just refined everything. And uh, Master of Puppets' the song is sort of the apotheosis of everything that they were trying to do. Much in the same way that like uh, Cal- much in the same way that uh, Good Vibrations was the apotheosis of the Beach Boys, where Brian Wilson took every single thing that he could think of that would make a great Beach Boys song and put it into Good Vibrations. Ah.
0: I love the colorful clothes you wear And the way the sunlight plays James
2: Hetfield, Lars Ulrich, Kirk Hammett, and Cliff Burton did that with the song Master of Puppets. And I think at the time, Master of Puppets, the song, was just sort of almost, you know, it was just like, hey, let's just write another cool kick-ass song. Because like, if you listen to the lyrics, they're about drug addiction and sort of just making fun of people who, you know, chop their breakfast on the mirror to use one of the lyrics. And they refined that again i mean it's sort of funny that this became the the, the biggest hit from that album because it is such a very specific song that has extended decades in a weird way which is kind of cool too
1: i feel like it's one of those songs where james hudfield wrote it about drug abuse or cocaine abuse or whatever it was and and then everyone who ever heard the song decided to ignore that and to mentally make it about something cooler. I don't know what exactly, but I yeah, feel like. Yeah, like,
2: <laughs> like, 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 like politicians controlling you right, or something like that. Right. It's drugs, man. And I think he wrote
1: it about his roommate. <laughs> <laughs> right. Everyone's like, I don't care. It's not about that. <laughs> even though the lyrics could not be clearer. Yeah. But, and it's also, you know, as you wrote in your story, like, you know, they always loved Rush. They even tried to get Geddy Lee to produce this album from Rush, which is amazing. Yeah. And the, the bit when it goes into the soft part and then rises actually reminds me of Rush's Jacob's Ladder specifically. <laughs> So there is that, that that prog aspect of of Metallica coming through. Although you don't, I don't think they get to that part in the Stranger Things version because we we don't have time to for for acoustics at that point. He didn't bring no. an acoustic guitar out to the out to the the cliff or wherever where he was battling the bat.
2: So that's okay. Yeah, that's uh, a good point. though. thrash metal in general is very progressive because they just stack these riffs on each other. And like later on when Metallica sort of simplified their sound, they're just like, why are we stacking all these riffs? And I think it's just because they came out of that whole prog scene. I hadn't thought about that so explicitly before
1: but it's just you know the power of it feels undiminished and you know it has an impact because the argument on tiktok is ever gen z metal fans already existed and there certainly are there's a sort of back and forth about whether it's gatekeeping to be mad at the new fans that metallica is getting because of this or at least this song is getting and metallica themselves have welcome their new fans. So it's definitely having an impact. And you know that there'll be at least one band in a few years, and they'll ask their origin story, and it will be this moment in Stranger Things. I have really no doubt of that. Yeah, I hope Um, so. That'd be amazing. But the thing that's funny is Kate Bush is pretty reclusive, but even she kind of made a few statements, did an interview in response to this, because it's just hard. It's just such a big thing. And Metallica have been just really all over this. I mean, to the point of seeming slightly thirsty. They've just been all over this, jumping on their TikTok, uh, inviting, you know, duetting with the scene.
2: They seem just over the moon about this. Yeah. I mean, in a weird way, I mean, I think it is something for them to celebrate because I think they knew they had something so good in 1986. And like all Metallica fans recognize it as this classic. But it's, its greatness in some weird ways has been usurped by some of their more commercial hits, like, like, like Enter Sandman and Sad But True. So I think in a weird way, they're probably just celebrating the fact that this masterpiece is finally getting pop culture recognition, which just seemed impossible at the time. And I'm sure they didn't even want pop culture recognition in 1986. I'm sure they didn't want to be Kate Bush, which had an actual hit with Running Up That Hill in 1985. They didn't want that. But I think now, you know, I think that they are able to maybe enjoy it a little bit more, but yeah, I mean, yeah, of course, they're going to be all over. They know how to appreciate a good moment.
1: It's been a weird year for that. It's like the something in the way by Nirvana is now the Batman song. Mm-hmm. Uh, Master of Puppets is now the Stranger Things song. Hey, whatever it takes, you know. I think I think it's all for the it's all for the good.
2: It's all and, music I like. I can't complain. Yeah,
1: absolutely, <laughs> it, it's very cool. I mean, you know, even Gen Z, the the people who call it the Stranger Things song immediately get shit on by other kids the same age who are a little more savvy. It's not like ignorance is encouraged, actually that you know in fact, if anything, it's you know, it's stunning numbers of seventeen year olds claiming to have been lifelong Metallica fans are emerging. So they can bat back the ones who who But the other aspect that I think actually is under discussed about this season is that in a pretty clever way, the whole season is sort of a twist on something that was happening in real life. I mean, the whole thing where the character of Eddie Munson gets falsely blamed for these murders is a real twist, and the fact that he's, you know, the the Dungeon Dragon's dungeon master and all of that, it's a real twist on on a real-life satanic panic that really took over this country in the 80s. And there's a lot of aspects to it, but one of them was certainly associating heavy metal with Satan. I think the most extreme version of this was the lawsuit that blamed Judas Priest for an attempted suicide because accusing them of, of having messages encouraging, you know, sort of satanic suicide or whatever in their music backwards. And this actually went to court. They actually
2: had to defend this. So that's how it yeah. got. They were, the, they were the defenders of the faith, to use their own term. <laughs> yeah, so the Satanic Panic's an interesting uh, phenomenon. Y- y- Judas Priest were the defendants of the faith, as a Rolling Stone called them in 1990 when they were in there, You know, punning off the fact that Judas Priest had an album called Defenders of the Faith. But Satanic Panic is a pretty wild thing in retrospect. I think that it was a symptom of wave of conservatism that started in the 70s. I know that there were accusations of... Backmasking on Led Zeppelin records, like I think Stare uh, stairway to Heaven, was, there's was supposedly backmasking back on there. Ronald Reagan achieved his red wave across America. I think that there was a strong rooting in conservatism and evangelicalism and Christianity that sort of took over. The idea of the satanic panic thing was that there were, you know, metal albums specifically you mentioned judas priest that celebrated darkness and there was also role-playing games like dungeons and dragons but the, the bands themselves were celebrating and singing about the kings and queens and he'll steal your dreams and it didn't sit well with christianity that somebody might be making sort of a horror movie out of music and so they Somewhere along the line in the early 80s, people were concocting these stories about cults and satanic worship and children being sacrificed and devil worship and really demonized, you know, to, to pun off that heavy metal music and role playing games. And it was a it was a weird thing. I remember it a little bit even in, into the, the 90s as a teenager. Dungeons and Dragons was still something in in conservative Colorado that that people talked about being like, oh, you don't want your kids playing that. I remember my mom, you know, in the late 80s and even early 90s was like, oh, Corey, I don't want you playing with that. It's a weird thing because it was in the news everywhere.
1: The Zeppelin thing is really interesting because it wasn't until 1981 that the reverse thing picked up speed. There was some preacher who specifically said it was 81 or 82 where a preacher said that if you know as as we well know he, he said that if you play it backwards it said here's to my sweet satan. <laughs> And I'm convinced that this was the best thing that ever happened to Led Zeppelin after the 70s because it it made them so relevant even into the 80s. It it made them sort of the, the fathers of the satanic panic. And so thus made these like old guys who, meanwhile Robert Plant was like on MTV making some truly corny songs and yet his legacy was still this like, you know this terrifying, uh, satanic band. There
2: was the Ozzy stuff.
1: And it's always so funny, once we, once the world actually got to go know Ozzy, especially uh, in in the MTV, in the reality show, it's so funny that people were so scared of him, but they were. Yeah,
2: well, Ozzy was biting the heads off bats and doves and urinating on the Alamo, and sometime in there, there were two kids that were listening to his first album, and they... Created a, you know, they allegedly created a murder suicide pact, and one of them survived and blamed Ozzy in the song Suicide Solution.
0: Wine is fine, but is suicide
1: is low, and,
2: and unlike right. Judas Priest, that case was thrown out of court, right. but Judas Priest had to go to court. Oh, it's actually an anti-drinking song. Solutions, oh, right. a Solutions a pun, which is even funnier. So, right, So right, don't right. drink or you're, you're going to kill yourself, which I think the bassist wrote sort of as a jab at Ozzy, like, stop drinking, Ozzy. Yeah. My favorite thing about backmasking is I think it was Rob Helford or, or somebody like that from Judas Priest At the t- during their trial. They said, you know, if we're going to put backward masking, if we're going to put messages on our albums, we're going to tell kids buy more of our albums, buy more Judas Priest albums. We're not going to tell them to kill themselves. We want more fans. We yeah. want more, more records sold. I think that was, that statement was the entire inspiration
1: for the movie Josie and the Pussycats. Maybe there you go. Uh, there you go. But yeah, no, it was cool to see all that embodied in Stranger Things. There's got to be like a lot of '80s artists
2: praying. That next season is their moment, you know. <laughs> there were songs just watching that season, like like I think the the final episode closed, I believe, with Susie Sue, and I'm just like, come on, let's give Susie Sue a moment. Right, <laughs> Susie Sue needs a resurgence.
1: Right, it's weirdly, you know what it, what it takes for it to hook into the culture, because it were there was a bunch of other songs, there was Pass the Duchy and other things. Yep. That, but what it takes is it has to be embedded in the plot like those two songs right like like running up that's what it seems it it seemed because it also I mean you know in the new Thor movie there's huge use of Guns N' Roses and it seems to have had zero impact I expected it more but I think it's because it wasn't it was it's as cool as it may have been some people actually didn't think it was cool some people thought it was like too obvious I I kind of thought it was cool but it it wasn't it was essentially, in the end, just background music, and that isn't going to hit people the
2: same way. It's, it's the magic of the music, in a way. Like, the magic of Kate Bush is what protects Maxine. And the magic of Master of Puppets is what, what saves them and, and attracts the bats. The bats all want to rock out to, to Metallica, which <laughs> sounds pretty metal when you say it out loud. It's the magic of it, and I think that that, and especially in a show with Stranger Things, where you do have this, like, dedicated fan base, which you would, you know, which Thor should have, too. But I think it's the magic of it that that translates, Yeah. People see this music in action.
1: It also was just like that scene just to wrap up was just metal. It was just so fucking
2: metal. It was just
1: metal as fuck.
2: Yeah. <laughs> when they, you know, when Dustin was saying that, when they were, when, when Eddie and Dustin was like, yeah, we're going to have the most metal concert ever, you know, it's, it's going to be the, so metal. You know, and, and, and I roll my eyes when I see that on a TV show. I'm just like, come on, like, there's the, you're not going to do this. And then, like, they delivered on it. And they, I can't think of many other things that actually deliver on it something like that without being too corny.
1: Even it's the same episode where people are, are being strangled for, I swear to God, like 20 minutes straight without dying. It's, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Slow motion strangling, whatever. It's If Master of Puppets is playing you, overlook it all. I, I do really want to know how he plugged in that amp. I'm sorry. I, I need
2: to know. My favorite thing about it was that he was playing a BC uh, BC Rich Warlock, which is the Slayer guitar. I don't think I know if anybody's pulled, called them out on that yet. <laughs> then, that's funny, too.
1: I guess they just pick the most metal guitar. It is there the most might, metal guitar. Yeah. yeah. Well, Corey, thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Definitely. Thanks for having me on, man. So that's our show for today. Rolling Stone Music Now will be back next week. We are a podcast. We're also on SiriusXM's volume, channel 106. Download us wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you heard, maybe consider giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts and Spotify because that's always appreciated. But as always... Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.